0: Welcome, everyone, to the Asian Voices Radio Podcast, where you'll find real Asian American conversations, including all those topics that you were too afraid to ask your Asian parents. I'm your host, Melissa May, and it is my honor and pleasure to welcome our guest today, Richard Leong, who is a diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI consultant, facilitator, and leadership and identity coach. He's also a board member of a national nonprofit called Act to Change that works to end bullying and hate in the Asian American American community. Hi, Richard. Welcome.
1: Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for the intro. It's great to be here. How are you doing today?
0: Wonderful. We're so happy to have you. Now, first of all, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience?
1: Yeah, of course. I'd love to. Um, So my name is Richard. My pronouns are he, him, and his. Uh, I'm a second generation Chinese and Taiwanese American. My parents are immigrants from Hong Kong and Taiwan. Um, I grew up in Southern California, went to college in New York, uh, and now I'm happy to be back home in California, um, working as you mentioned, um, a diversity, equity, inclusion consultant facilitator and coach. Um, In terms of what that means, it it means that I get really excited thinking about how to build fairer and more human-centric workplaces, which is something that I think a lot of folks are thinking about right now. It's top of mind for a lot of people. Um, And so my work centers around that, and I spend a lot of time thinking and writing about the intersection of politics, pop culture, social justice, how do all these things kind of combine um, in the world that we live in today.
0: Now, how was it growing up with Asian American parents in California?
1: Yeah, uh, it was amazing. I feel like it was like I feel like growing up in Southern California, um, as an Asian American, it, it's one of the most privileged and lucky experiences you can have. There's a saying um, by uh, a famous writer and activist around Asian American issues, Karen Ishizuka. She writes that a lot of Asians in this country grow up either isolated or insulated. So isolated being you might be one of the few Asians in your neighborhood insulated. There might be many of you in your neighborhood. I definitely was like hardcore on the insulated side. My high school, my graduating class of high school in Irvine, Southern California was 50% Asian, like literally half the class was Asian. And I know that's wild for a lot of folks. Um, So in so many ways, you know, we had great public schools, I was surrounded by people who looked like me, really, really safe and welcoming and inclusive space to be in. I will also say, at the other hand, that like growing up in Southern California here, um, I, I was I was also bullied a lot growing up from middle school and high school, especially by other Asians. And so, you know, in terms of like thinking about the trajectory of my life and the work that I do now and the things that I'm interested in, I do think like a lot of that ties back to the fact that my bullies as a kid, like were not. White students, or you know, uh, students of other races, they were other Asians, um, and so I spent a lot of time thinking about Asian American community and how do we build coalition between Asian Americans uh, professionally as an adult? Uh, because I think I'm I'm trying to build that sense of solidarity and community that I didn't really have as a kid, um, that but I was forced to think about a lot, right, as being bullied by uh, by other Asians.
0: And how I can imagine, you know, the average I'd say probably Asian American person is probably bullied by someone that's not. Asian. How was that dealing with someone that, you know, sort of looks like you bullying you?
1: It's really weird. Like when I look back on it, I think there were lots of parts of it that didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, Like I was called, you know, racial, a racial slur for Asian folks that I won't say on the podcast that begins with the letter C. I was called that by like other Korean American kids in high school. And I was like, hold up here. Like, isn't there supposed to be some sort of same like solidarity? Team, same team, Yeah, right? Like, I was like, there's there's some, like I'm, I'm going home and I'm watching K-dramas just as you are. So like, I don't what's going on here. Um, so, you know, I, I think it, it, it did make me think a lot about race and identity very early on from a young age, right? I think when you are confronted with these moments as a child where people are drawing distinctions between you and them, where people are drawing these lines of difference, these lines of division, I think it forces you to, to really kind of grapple with yourself um, and to try to think about those lines of division um, in a really serious way from an early age, right? Um, And so coming up out of that, going to college in New York City, which was an incredibly diverse um, place and incredible experience, I went into that really kind of focused and sensitive to wanting to learn and think about race and identity, right? Um, that's how I found my way out of political science, out of pre-med into sociology as a major, uh, which then led me to think being really passionate about educational equity, which I know we can get later, but that was, that was my first job coming out of college. It really sort of like pushed this whole sort of trajectory for me where race, identity, these issues of diversity and difference really are core and central to, to my career, despite having moved through different kinds of spaces.
0: So, you know, Richard, a lot of people don't have the opportunity to turn their passion into a career. So I'm really happy that you're able to do that, but kind of segueing back, do you have any advice for those who may be experiencing bullying at, you know, maybe that they're in school or parents that are dealing with kids that are being bullied or, you know, adults that are being bullied in their workplace, in their workplace?
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, there's so many things that I wish I'd heard when I was in that situation. Um, let's, let's separate these out a little bit. I would say that um, starting first with like kids and for parents, guardians, folks that work with kids who are experiencing this, then two things are incredibly important. Number one is just being able to give folks who are experiencing bullying a sense of community, a sense of um, strong relationships with people who care about them. Uh, There's something about being bullied there where it just just makes you feel like you are like the smallest and like only person in the world who ever experiences these things. There's something incredibly isolating about that. So number one is just, I think, wrapping folks um, in like a really deep, strong, loving sense of community. Um, the second thing, especially for young folks, is I think giving them the vocabulary to understand what it is that they are experiencing, particularly like the actions as well as the feelings that that that, that come up from being bullied. Um, there is something about where when you give folks the the uh, a word to explain what it is that they're dealing with, like oh this is bullying or oh that's a microaggression or like oh like that you know didn't feel right for whatever reason. Um, when we can give folks the vocabulary, I think. A, it helps them understand it better. It helps them sort of like process that better. B, it also means that like, again, you're not alone. (laughs) This has happened to enough people that we actually have a word to describe what that is. And just knowing that I think can be a great sense of comfort um, and stability for folks who really need that. Um, For folks who are older, right, who might be experiencing bullying in the workplace, there are so many, like number one is not your fault. Let's just like start with that because I think there's so much about being an adult where I think we, we begin to internalize these things and we, we blame ourselves for the situations we find ourselves in rather than looking to the larger system structures, frameworks that are surrounding us, right? Um, and so I don't have any specific or sort of tangible solutions because, you know, the work looks so varied, but I will say as a DEI consultant, working with companies, right? Working um, as, as a coach with my clients who are adults that work in companies, Many, many times, the fault does not lie with the individual, it lies with the leadership of the organization and the culture that they have either allowed, um, or rather not allowed to, 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 the culture that they've allowed to to fester in place of what should be there. Uh, These are all things that are like much larger problems than any individual person, right? So it's not your fault. And it definitely is a bigger picture problem
0: absolutely and um you know for our for our listeners do you have any resources that off the top of your head books or websites that, you know, to educate themselves as a parent, or maybe to go to if they are experiencing something in the workplace?
1: Yeah, um, I will have to definitely shout out a couple of folks on LinkedIn. Um, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn as a professional networking site, right? Um, and thankfully, the world of DEI sort of influencers and thought leaders on LinkedIn is, is really, really um, powerful. Um, and it's been really helpful for me in my own career. So would definitely recommend that folks follow a couple of folks like, uh, let's see, Michelle Mijang. Kim, who is the author of a book called *The Wake Up*, I highly recommend that to everyone. Um, I would also recommend folks follow Lily Zhang uh, on LinkedIn. That's Lily L i l y Z h e n g, also an incredible leader uh, in the DEI space, uh, who's got a book of their own coming out soon. Um, there's many more that we could probably put in the show notes, but those two jump to mind, uh, jump to the top of my mind.
0: It's so awesome that there are resources out there because I I feel like maybe back in the day, people didn't have you know a collective place to go to try to learn about what this you know what's happening and what they can do to try to reduce that problem. But jumping over to the pandemic, which I feel like we're we're coming out of it, but it's still kind of lingering. <laughs> you made a career decision to pivot, which is a huge change, especially during such an a. Uh, crazy time from education, nonprofits and civic leadership development to pursue a role in advancing DEI in tech. Not only that was super brave of you, but in your bio, I saw that you were once a math and English teacher for two years, I think. And I know DEI policy is very important for businesses in all industries. But what motivated you or inspired you to be like, hey, you know what? I'm going to shift careers from education to the DEI sector. And then also, can you tell us about your career as a DEI consultant? Multiple choice question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's, let's start with the journey of the pivot because that's, that's a long story for sure. <laughs> um, I would say that like, okay, uh, the, the context I'll, I'll give here is that, you know, and this is not news to anyone. I think we all understand this, but um, the skills, the knowledge, the perspectives that we have that we bring to our work. That's a reflection of the context, um, uh, the the environment that we've grown up in, right? The environment that we've come up in. Um, And so coming out of college with a sociology degree and a really strong passion in educational equity, I worked as a teacher. Um, And after doing that for a few years and then moving into nonprofits, uh, I had basically come to a point in my career where thanks to coming up in education and nonprofits, I had a really really strong sense of what diversity equity inclusion looked like and meant from that sort of like social justice perspective right working in public education we are confronted with the inequities of society every day in our classrooms our schools particularly right are sometimes uh, the most visible window to the racial and economic segregation that exists in america we see that reflective in which kids go to which schools, right? So I had the privilege of, since I I worked in the space, I had the privilege of being able to be thinking about DEI for a really, really long time. Not only that, um, throughout that career in education nonprofits, um, I had truly the tremendous gift to be able to be surrounded by really progressive, strong leaders um, in the Asian American community for whom thinking about our identity thinking about what it means to be Asian under this like wide racialized hierarchy that is the United States that is not sort of an uncommon experience right Um, I was lucky to be surrounded by folks who really knew the history of Asian American activism who really knew and had practiced sort of what does it look like to build solidarity across different lines of racial difference right so I had all of this uh, just by luxury of coming up in education and nonprofits, and when the pandemic hit, I was already looking to make a shift. I would say that the uh, the murder of George Floyd really, really changed a lot of things for me because with that with that event, um, I had friends um, and friends of friends uh, from college and so on that had only had spent their entire career in the private sector, many of whom were Asian. And all of a sudden, folks started just like reaching out to me. Uh, in the past, whereas my Facebook sort of posts about politics might have been cited let's say, rigorous debate and discussion, uh, more like debate. Uh, Now folks are reaching out, asking for help, right? Folks are asking like, hey, Richard, what do you think about what's happening right now? What do you think about? What does it mean to be Asian? Like with all of these, with all the racial uprisings that are led by Black Lives Matter, like what does it mean to be Asian? And all these folks reaching out, asking for help. And I realized that the knowledge and experience and the perspectives that I have been so lucky to receive coming up in education nonprofits, Um, there was a tremendous opportunity to bring that into the private sector an industry I'd never worked in before and really share that gift, right? Really be able to share with other Asian folks like, hey, here's some Asian American leaders in our history that have been incredible activists that are really great role models with really great life lessons that we can learn from right now. Hey, here's a model for like how to build community across different lines of racial groups that was used by various nonprofits in the 70s. And hey, we could use that for your employee resource groups right now, right? This is a framework for how to build coalitions that we could apply right now. Um, and so I made that shift in that pivot because I was really interested to, to bring these, these skill sets into a new space and to see what I could make of them.
0: Wow. The, the fact that you're mentioning that there were things in place in the 70s that are, you know, relevant today it it shows that we we need to make we definitely need to make a change i feel like we definitely need to make changes and one way that you've been doing that is you're an inaugural board member of a nonprofit organization called act to change
1: and are you still on this board i am i am still on this board
0: so richard can you talk about your career as a dei consultant now
1: yeah happy to thanks for reminding me of part two of the question there just... Um, yeah, it's it's incredible work. Um, I, I definitely love it. It's is it easy? No, <laughs> it's it's very difficult in a lot of ways. But I think it's also challenging and a great fit for me in a couple of ways too. Um, the number one thing that I would say here is that you know, um, DEI consulting looks very different depending on the type of person that you're talking to and the type of clients that they that they get to work with. Um, what each and any of us who works in the DI industry brings to our work is going to have to be incredibly personal. Um, We all bring sort of a weird mix of knowledge, skills and perspectives that reflects who we are as people. Um, For me personally, I have always been, <laughs> this has not always been good for my career. I've always been like just like a really nice guy. I don't know how to say that without sounding like I'm bragging about myself, but like that's the truth of it, right? Like when people ask me questions, I want to explain things. Like I want to be helpful. I want to be nice. Like, ah. Um, and where that's kind of, you know, uh, uh, bitten me in the butt in the past is that it's led to a lot of burnout in past roles when it wasn't my job to explain you know, injustice and inequity to folks who never experienced it, right? When I was in spaces working with people of remarkable, tremendous privilege, privilege that I will never have in my lifetime, it was exhausting having to answer their questions all the time about what it's like being a person of color, right? The nice thing about DEI consulting is that that is literally my job now. It is literally my job. Like I am literally paid. At now. Least you should
0: get paid. I now. am paid
1: now, which is the best thing about it. Yeah, I am paid now to literally help people sort of understand um, the wide range of experiences that we we not only you know share in this world, but also how do we design um, organizational culture systems and processes to be better, right? Um, DEI is a lot of things for me, one of the biggest parts about it is about systems. Um, it's about building systems, particularly at work, um, that support those who are marginalized and whether that marginalization happens as a result of broader things happening in our society and history, or as a result of, you know, internal workplace systems around feedback, around performance evaluation, whatever that may be. My job is about how do we change these systems to make them better and more fair. Um, it's really, really future centered work. Um, it requires, you know, a lot of optimism, which is sort of how my, my personality naturally skews. So those are things that are really, really exciting. And I really love that part about my job.
0: Now, you know, the saying is you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. So you might give all these resources to your clients. But do you find that they they put them into place and they learn and they, you know, all the things that you teach them, they put them into practice or what if, What are the trends that you've noticed? Hopefully good ones, but. Yeah,
1: good question. Uh, the, the, the trends are all over the place uh, because every organization is different, of course. Um, I will say this, though. Um, I believe that the difference between leading a horse to water and making them drink, I'm totally butchering your metaphor. if I don't remember right now. It's a great idiom, but um, the difference there, I don't think it's as cut and dry in the moment as it might seem. I think the difference or the, the extra factor to consider here is time. Um, one of the things that I've learned from politics and community organizing is that a loss today might just be the foundation and the groundwork for a win tomorrow, right? Um, Every political campaign, if you talk to community organizers, you talk to folks who, you know, work on getting out the vote for a particular candidate or a vote issue, they'll tell you that, like, with every campaign that they run, yeah, maybe the ballot action doesn't pass. Maybe their candidate doesn't make it to the next round. However, The infrastructure and the framework they've built to be able to make that happen, that can be the foundation for a future win, right? Uh, And so I would argue the same thing is true for um, workplace DEI for any company. Um, Sometimes there are things that I will put out there that maybe are just a little bit too far down the line for some executives to to really want to go for right now. But even just putting that idea in their head. Um, Sharing that with uh, folks on the ground, uh, regular sort of uh, frontline employees, having that in their mindset as something to potentially aspire to in the future can often be um, something to point towards, right? Um, So that's the beauty beauty of the work too, is that I take a long-term view to it sometimes.
0: Be the change, whether it's present or in the future, right? So you are an inaugural board member of a nonprofit called Act to Change. And are you still on that I board?
1: I am. I am. I'm super proud to be on this board.
0: Ah. Oh, well, so could you tell the view- the listeners, you know, about their mission and the programs and how you got to be on yeah. board?
1: Um, so Act to Change is a national nonprofit that was originally born out of the Obama administration's White House initiative on AAPIs. Uh, Back then it was a public awareness campaign focused on raising awareness um, about the issue of bullying and how it impacted um, API students. Um, API standing for Asian Pacific Islander American. Um, Now there's lots of different kinds of studies here. So the numbers are kind of a little bit all over the place, but back at the time, there was one that a lot of folks were sharing that pointed to uh, almost 50% of API students were reporting um, that they would be bullied um, at some point um, in their their careers in education, right? Um, And so things like that are are certainly, I think not surprising uh, for folks that are embedded in the community, but it's often not talked about because Well, there's a lot of reasons why API folks aren't talked about that I I think listeners to this podcast know already. Anyway, uh, in terms of where Change is now today, we've moved out of the White House um, and are now our own standalone nonprofit. Still focused on anti-bullying as our mission, and we're doing that through a couple of uh, different uh, methods. One, we do virtual programs that folks are welcome to check out on our YouTube and social media page. Um, Our biggest event of the year every year is uh, in May. Um, the annual um, AAPI Day Against Bullying and Hate um, on May 18th. Uh, Also coming up soon in October, uh, which is National Anti-Bullying Awareness Month, we'll be running a youth conference um, that I'm super excited to be planning right now. Um, So besides doing all these virtual programs, we've also um, been able to be a part of some policy and advocacy efforts. Um, Recently, some of our listeners may know that there's a couple states that have passed uh, legislation to require um, AAPI history uh, to be included in statewide curriculum, history curriculum, so that's super exciting. Uh, and then beyond that, this, this past year, we also launched our inaugural Youth Ambassador Program, which was super exciting for me. Uh, we ran small cohorts uh, for middle and high school kids um, in different cities around the country and led them through our, our leadership development uh, programming. Um, so yeah, lots of little things that we're doing all over the place. Um, super exciting time to be a part of the organization.
0: Now, this kind of a big thing that I know you didn't really want to talk about, but I think it's really important that you talk about. Your board was recognized for a pretty substantial award. Can you talk about
1: that? (laughs) Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, Last year, we were on Good Morning America's 2021 inspiration list of uh, who is making Asian American Pacific Islander history. So that that was pretty exciting for sure.
0: And it's it's nice that it wasn't just one member of your board; it was the entire board, and I think that shows that the organization has surrounded themselves with a board that is knowledgeable, and that's the important thing about a nonprofit. You need to have someone, people on the board, that you know have the same kind of ideals, but you know uh, enact change. Which I mean, it's in the name of your organization, so kudos to that. Mm -hmm. Now. You have quite a few other job titles as well, including a leadership and identity coach. Now, what are some of the qualities that you have that helped you become successful in this realm?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh man, this is this is also such a difficult question for me because I don't know how to answer it without like feeling like I'm bragging about myself. But I am. I am happy to. Speak.
0: There's no good elevator speech.
1: <laughs> I, I am happy to, to to speak about the successes of my clients. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll start there. Um, I'll, I'll say this um, for folks, I know that, you know, a lot of folks, especially these days, I think more and more folks are thinking about, you know, maybe, hey, could I potentially get a coach to help me? And maybe I'm not feeling super satisfied in my career. Maybe I'm thinking about a pivot. Um, everybody, A lot of folks, maybe not everybody, but a lot of folks are thinking about hopping jobs right now, right? Um, I'll say this. Um I think that to me, in terms of being a leadership and identity coach for Asian Americans, one really, really big thing that I really pride myself on is that I don't see my clients, the people that I coach, as sort of empty vessels that need to be filled with whatever knowledge, advice, and insight that I have to offer, right? Like that, that's not how this works. This is not a a one way sort of directional transfer of of information or or whatnot. Um, I come into any sort of coaching relationship. And even in my group coaching, my group facilitation, um, I like to see people as uniquely qualified, right? People are, everyone is uniquely qualified to do something. We just maybe don't know what that is. Or maybe that job just doesn't, you know, it didn't exist in whatever, you know, kindergarten book you got about like jobs you could do. Like we we don't know these things, right? Um, So my role isn't to sort of like impart people with whatever I have to offer. It's to be a guide. Um, I love, 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 love conversations where I get to just chat with people as people to help them discern in their own words, right? Like what are the things about their background, their interests, their skill sets that make them uniquely qualified? And what are the potential things they could do that would be a really, really great fit for that?
0: Well, building off of that, it seems like you really like talking about your clients more than yourself, which, you know, says a lot about you, but what was, what are some of your most successful moments as a coach? And are there any particular stories that you'd like to share?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I am, my, my cup is continuously filled by like, you know, the, the very, very lovely, wonderful comments that I get back from folks. I have had folks tell me that some of my workshops and things have like changed their lives, which is a very, very high bar. And I, you know, I'm very grateful for that. Um, one specific story i'll share just because i think this is this is interesting as an asian right like i think for a lot of asian american cultures i, I definitely will not speak for all of us but i i believe that for many of us in the asian american culture um, and community Uh, There is, you know, uh, an idea that those who are older just have more knowledge and have more wisdom and we need to sort of like, you know, uh, venerate up to that. Um, One of my favorite stories is that actually a woman who has maybe 15 to 20-ish years more work experience than me reached out to me, um, just as a cold DM, uh, direct message on LinkedIn. Um, she had been tasked Slid by... Slid into com- your DNA. Yes, not, like, not the way that most folks sort of use that phrase. Not that but yes, way. Yes. Not that <laughs> yeah. way. Um, so this incredible leader, um, corporate executive with you know, 15 to 20 years more experience than me, uh, reached out uh, because she had been asked by her fellow executives at her company to lead a workshop and a, a presentation, I should say, about what it's like to be Asian during Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. Uh, Yeah, incredibly broad time. I don't really know what they were imagining when they asked you to do that. And she certainly didn't either, which is why she reached out to me, right? um she had a lot of you know what but uh, the uh, the famous blogger uh, angry asian man has coined uh, rep sweats uh, the anxiety over having to like represent all of asian america and like do it really well because we never get a chance to represent right she had incredible rep sweats about what this presentation was going to be like she also wanted to tell a story that i won't get into the details here but she wanted to tell a story about a difficult conversation she had with her mother um that sort of highlighted you know some of the uh, the the Really complicated ways that many Asian families have with with the intergenerational connecting across generations, right? Um, and so together we did a couple things. We number one helped discern language to explain like why this was just like a wildly weird ask in the first place, uh, and she was able to use that language to sort of not push back on the event, but rather reframe it and create space for subsequent events, so that there wouldn't just be this like one time during Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, this one event for the whole year for like Asians to talk about being Asian. Like that's weird. Like she was able to advocate for like continued subsequent conversations. And two, we were able together to workshop her story, right? To like help her, uh, figure out a way to tell that story in a way that honored the complexity of it um, and really sort of like drill down the point, which was that it wasn't that she had a tough conversation with her mom and that's what it means to be Asian. It's that relationships with our parents um, are really important as Asians and they can be complicated because of all the things that have happened, the different uh, things that are, the, the different contexts that we've grown up with versus they've grown up with. We were able to workshop that story so that she felt comfortable telling it um, and that it would be received in the way that she wanted to be received. Um, so I'm particularly proud of that because I'm not going to lie. I had some anxiety when she reached out. I was like, what do I have to teach or help someone with so much more work experience than me? Um, and yet, you know, together we, we found a path forward. So that's, that's always a story I love to share.
0: Oh, that's very nice. And that, yeah, I, I feel like people, it shows people of all ages can always learn something new. And even if, you know, people are younger, they still have something to offer. So I'm glad that's a I'm glad you shared that, and hopefully she her, her talk went well. Hopefully she she got back to you and was like, hey, Richard, I yeah, nailed it.
1: Yeah, she did, actually. She, she let me know a week later um, that it went really, really well, so kudos to her.
0: Oh, fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. Now, on your website, I'm, I'm hoping all our listeners go in and visit your website, but in pretty big letters, it says, the world we deserve doesn't exist yet, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on that and kind of explain what type of world is that. Yeah.
1: Uh, so I uh, let me start by saying that, like, I'm an incredibly future-oriented person, right? Like, I get very, very inspired by uh, sitting back in my big, comfortable chair and imagining what is the type of world in the future that we could have. Um, and the reason is, um, when I think about sort of, you know, the larger systems of, of racism, of classism, the larger, you know, uh, sys- these all these systems of oppression that kind of wrap around together that we think about um, in the DEI space none of these things are new, right? Like all of these things have been a part of human history for a really, really, really long time. Things have shifted and changed, right? Even if we kind of drill it on our lens that anti-Asian racism, anti-Asian racism is certainly not new in, in this day and age right now. It is a the latest manifestation of anti-Asian rhetoric and laws and policies that have been around in America for a really, really long time. So to me, the answer to all, the, all, of, our, all of these problems it does not lie in the past, it lies in the future, right? Um, part of that is also me being a former educator and continuously being inspired by the activism of those who are younger than us, who have the ability to dream of a much more beautiful future than any, than, than any of us can. Um, you asked you know, sort of what, what, what does that future look like? I don't have a super strong or super clear answer on my own there, right? Because I think it's something we have to co-create together. Um, I do believe that like, Number one, we have to get into a space where we are comfortable having really difficult and honest conversations about privilege and identity and oppression, right? I am very much a structuralist. I I do not see things that happen to people as a result of their individual choices. I see it as a result of larger systems of society and larger context that people are growing up in. Uh, And I think sometimes folks are hesitant to expand their lens, um, to go that deep, right? To like see the bigger picture. So one, I think we just have to get better about doing that. Uh, And two, um, I think that we have to, have to, have to, have to really, really invest in a more sort of community and collective oriented approach to solving our problems. From health, fitness, Finding the great job, uh, I, I, I don't even know how to like list this out because there's so many issues, but I think individualism is a value that we just sort of take for granted and don't talk about, and that needs to be replaced um, by a stronger sense of collectivism. Um, I think we all have to have a stronger sense of caring for each other and finding solutions for our problems in the collective rather than individual. Um, so, I know those are two kind of like big philosophical ideas, but those are two things that I think a lot about. Um, and I think they're going to be part of the future um, that we deserve.
0: Absolutely. It's not just an Asian problem. It's not just a, you know, African American problem. It's not just an LGBTQIA problem. It's a, it's a, you know, a person people problem. So that's, it's a very, it's a very, we have a very worldly sense, I feel like as well as a future sense, Richard. Well, unfortunately, we are almost out of time today. But I want to thank our guest Richard Leong for sharing his amazing Career, diverse career with us, and I hope his story will serve as an inspiration to all of you that are listening. Richard, do you have any social media or websites our listeners can follow or learn more about what you do?
1: Uh, I try to hide from people on most social media. But oh, yes, don't, uh, do, the it. Is don't always do it. Yes. <laughs> uh, folks can find me on my website, richardleong.com. My last name is spelled L E O N G. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. That is where I am most active um, in terms of the DEI work, so feel free to reach out there.
0: Well, I want to thank our guest, Richard Leong, again for joining us today. And if you have any suggestions or future guests for future guests or topics, we'd love to hear from you. Also, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, as well as follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Asian Voices Radio is produced by Asian Culture and Media Alliance, a nonprofit that empowers our API community with a voice through media arts. If you'd like to support our program and make a donation, please visit Asian Voices Radio. Com. Again, I'm your host, Melissa May, and please join us again next week for another exciting and thought-provoking Asian Voices radio show. Until next time, take care, everyone.